Welcome to episode 20 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, you can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. Today's guest is a colleague that I had the pleasure of meeting several years ago as part of the George W. Bush Institute Veteran Leadership Program. She's a great example of someone who has gained strength after struggles and is using that strength to help inform the conversation about suicide in the military population. Shauna, what can you tell us about Dr. Hendricks Thomas? So Kate Hendricks Thomas, PhD, is a behavioral medicine researcher and Master Certified Health Education Specialist. She is also a very proud Marine Corps veteran. She's a writer and researcher at heart and has authored over 100 scientific publications and presentations. One of the valuable perspectives that Kate brings to Seeking the Military Suicide Solution is her understanding of the unique challenges faced by female warriors. Along with Kyle Ann Hunter, Kate is the author of the book, Invisible Veterans, what happens when military women become civilians again? Invisible Veterans is an anthology of stories of female warriors. In her characteristically thoughtful way, Kate reflects on this topic and many others today on the podcast. Yes, and as a preview, it was interesting to me how she talks about women service members being a visible minority and then shifting to being an invisible veteran. And, and I think that's important. We talk about it in the show, how it's not just about suicide in the military population, but suicide in specific populations. So we'll get into this conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. We really haven't talked a lot about specific populations and suicide prevention in specific populations. A lot of your work is around suicide in the women veteran population. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on that. So much of my work has been focused on well-being, health, suicide prevention in special populations of veterans. And recently, Kylan Hunter and I released a book called Invisible Veterans. And it was not a book as much as it is an anthology. It's a collection of voices. And what we found when we talked to women veterans about their health, their mental health, is that they don't avail themselves of the traditional support structures that are available to veterans. Well, much of my research has shown that, for example, 75% of women veterans are not members of VSOs. And their stated reasons for not joining is that there are feelings of not belonging. There are feelings that what the VSO is doing is not relevant to them. There is a percentage that report it not necessarily being a welcoming space. And then there are really interesting, solvable structural problems like women veterans are more likely to be caregivers of dependent children. And a lot of VSO programs and activities don't offer childcare. So they are completely edged out of participation. And the reason I think that research in particular, which we published in the Journal of Veteran Studies and in Traumatology, we are able to offer advice to veteran services organizations that want to attract and retain women so that they can serve them. And one of the things that these VSOs do is provide a social support structure. And in all my work on resilience, 
what I have found is that to be really mentally well, to be really successful, you need to have a bedrock of functional social support. And that bedrock of social support is much lower in military women veterans. They have lower levels of social support. And one of the reasons for that is that they have a different experience on active duty than male military personnel do. Any subpopulation of veterans is gonna have a slightly different experience, whether we're talking about branch of service or we're talking about you know, a demographic subpopulation. You know, and that's extremely important for people to understand. Maybe those who are listening who may not have had military service themselves, and it's not an us against them, but it's veterans, right? Veterans are this large homogenous group. Just like any other large homogenous group in a culture, there's subcultures, and we need to address those subcultures differently. And what you're talking about is when female veterans, and I see this in the female veteran clients that I see, and I've worked in justice-involved populations, female veterans in the jails don't identify themselves as veterans. And so they don't get to avail themselves of veteran treatment courts, the same as, as their male counterparts. And so what basically this is, this is isolationing. And we know that isolation or separation from, like you said, the support structure is a significant risk factor for suicide. Absolutely. And women veterans enter this less supported veteran space with higher risk factors. For example, military women have really high rates of intimate partner violence, just what's reported to the Veterans Administration and the DOD. Those, those numbers are significant. That was my experience. I left the Marine Corps, married to another Marine. I eventually had intimate partner violence in my home and had to try to find a, a healthy way to deal with that. When I found out that I was not special in any way, that you know, a significant number of women veterans have the same experience, that was very helpful to me, knowing, knowing that that's a, kind of a systemic issue, a systemic problem. Uh, as we all know and have talked about a lot, military women leave the active duty component with an experience where they likely had lower levels of unit cohesion. It's more likely that they also suffered some form of harassment and potentially even sexual trauma while they're serving. So you've got all these risk factors and you have women veterans entering the veteran space with you know, poorer mental health outcomes. They have higher rates of stress injury. They also have higher rates of depression. A lot of my research has been on trying to break down when I say depression, I like looking for diagnosed depression. Have you ever been told uh, that you have one of these conditions? But it's really interesting to check for symptomology and see who's walking around with potentially an undiagnosed case of depression. And those numbers are higher in women veterans and military women as well. They're extremely high on active duty. And that I find extremely interesting. Military women on active duty, they know the culture in which they're operating, and they have a fear of showing weakness. So they're less likely to seek treatment and thus are more likely to be walking around with an undiagnosed condition that can turn into something worse when they enter a less supported space as a veteran. And that's what we see. So there are higher risk factors, but there's also a tremendous amount of success and resilience. The flip side of that coin is an interesting flip side. And in that success and resilience in these subpopulations based on the stress that goes to the idea of post-traumatic growth, right? You know, right. and not so much the cliche of what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, but having gone through that hardship, having been tested and repeatedly tested both by yourself and by others causes one to be stronger after that hardship. 
you find a lot of independence that translates into employment outcomes. Military veteran women start uh, entrepreneurial endeavors in incredibly high numbers. They're overrepresented in the small business owner workforce. They tend to be independent and confident and markedly successful. They have a lot of belief in what they're able to bring to the table after they make it through the, the crucible of military service as a minority. And I think that's really interesting and exciting to see. There is the issue when a woman is on active duty, she's one of the most visible service members because she's a numerical minority most places that she goes. Then you enter the veteran space and you're invisible. And that's actually what we titled the anthology was Invisible Veterans. You take your hair out of the bun, you take your uniform off, and you look like you shouldn't be parking in the veteran parking spot. It's very easy for people to assume that you're not the service member. And so we talk about this issue of invisibility and lack of recognition for service a lot because there's some social capital that comes with having served in the military. And unfortunately, military veteran women have a harder time accessing and enjoying that social capital. But I also wonder if for women veterans, that social capital comes at a painful price. And that goes back to what you were talking about before, is a, a woman veteran's experience in the military is more difficult than that for male veterans. You know, and some male veterans be like, oh, don't give me that. Well, you know, walk a mile in the shoes, right? So I was in logistics in my military career. So I served with women veterans throughout my military career. And I saw how difficult it was and definitely did my best to minimize that for, this, for the soldiers that I had. But that social capital can come at a painful price. Absolutely. And we're not just talking about traumatic experiences. We're talking about chronic stress. And one of the things that chronic stress does is decrease your working memory capacity, increase physical maladies within the body. So irritants, irritants become potential health problems, mental and physical. Rates of breast cancer in military women are higher than in civilian women. Rates of other cancers are higher in military women than they are in civilian women. And there's some really interesting research happening on that right now. But when I see those percentages, the first thing I think of is the result of long-term unabated chronic stress. If you have to prove yourself in every room in which you walk, you know, you have to deal with potentially not belonging, you know, a lack of social support, a, a decreased level of unit cohesion. If you have to really swim against that current for years, what does that do to you in terms of chronic stress and well-being? And uh, as we know, it, sh it absolutely creates growth, it creates strength, it creates independence. Uh, and I think women veterans value those traits. I would never change having been in the Marine Corps. I loved the Marine Corps and yet it was hard. It wasn't always a friendly space. In Iraq, I carried black spray paint in my cargo pocket so that I could, when I went into a port john I could, I could color whatever somebody had drawn or written about me. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the easiest place to find a tribe, but that translates into health effects and mental health effects once you become a civilian. And as a, as a result, we see those risk factors. You know, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about if we equate this to physical health, if we were trying to maybe get into physical shape but we have a broken leg, first we have to heal. So first yeah. we have to get up to baseline before we can then increase. But what you said earlier about the fact that there are detriments and there are the benefits, can healing and building resilience occur at the same time? 
Yes, absolutely. When I talk about what makes a person resilient, I talk about three things. So a person needs that foundation of social support. A person needs to learn how to manage their stress response and regulate their nervous system. And they need to practice something that I call mental fitness or bulletproofing the psyche. They need to practice nervous system regulation in a repeated fashion so that they are really the masters of their own stress response. Because the cool thing about the stress response is that it is designed to create growth and the ability to respond to stress better next time. There's a hormone that's released when you fire off fight or flight. It goes directly to the brain and it increases the front portion of your brain where upper level cognition, where communication capability and the ability to focus. You literally get better at calculus when this hormone goes to your brain. The catch is that this hormone only works, D-E-H-A is the acronym, it only works when your brain is in theta state. And that is a, a place of nervous system relaxation and down regulation that you have to get to regularly once or twice a day. So when I'm trying to teach a person to become resilient, that's part of the process is learning how to down regulate the nervous system for that brain health. And then the last component of resilience is a sense of purpose, connection to something bigger and higher. For some people that looks like uh, spirituality, for some people that looks to connection to, to higher sense of self or, or sense of purpose. And those three things make a person resilient, help a person grow. They also help a person heal. If you are teaching someone resilience in the uh, post-incident sector in the treatment sector, you are helping them heal. And the protocols are exactly the same. So I call it resilient trait cultivation. That matters before, during, and after departure from the military. And I think it's a really important thing that we should be teaching in entry-level training. And the Department of Defense is really coming around to that. There's been some exciting research in the last eight years about resilience and how to grow it. I don't know that all service branches are doing it well, but the intent is at least there. We're having the conversations. You don't build resilience by watching a PowerPoint about what makes a person resilient. So, you know, God bless some of these programs, but they're not there yet. No, I was, I was a master resilience trainer and it was excellent training. I went to UPenn and I studied uh, under Dr. Seligman's program and it was great. And then I came back to Fort Carson and the military did to the training the same thing we do to potatoes and eggs. We just boil the crap out of it until it's tasteless and it doesn't, doesn't do anything. And, and so, yes, there's all of these things, but it's not so much the theory, it's how we apply it. But this thing of, let's talk about regulating emotions, regulating anger, and the whole thing of count to 10 and leave the room. Well, you're just angry in the next room 10 seconds later. It doesn't do anything unless you know that you're oxygenating your lungs and being very mindful and actually focusing on regulating your nervous system. That's what the goal is, not just count to 10 and you know, be angry 10 seconds later. So there's always an educational component, whether you're in the prevention or the treatment sector. And I had the opportunity to speak about this with several people who had just left inpatient mental health care uh, with the VA for PTSD. And I was so excited when they got excited about the human stress response, because they were able to look in the mirror and say, there is a biological component. I'm not just stress injured. There is something literally happening within my physical body over which I can exercise some control if I operationalize this idea of self-regulation. And it was to see the excitement, because I think military people want to do. 
They want to make an impact. They want to have a, a way to attack forward. And simply learning about the human stress response, what it's meant to do and what it does in the traumatic or the chronic state, simply learning about that and realizing there were ways they could make inroads and improvements lit them up. And that was really exciting to see. But you're right. You can't just make it a PowerPoint and, and have it really make impact. You have to learn that there's individual work that goes into resilient trait cultivation and it's repeated. We don't do bicep curls once and then never do a bicep curl again, unless we want sad biceps. We have to repeatedly do such things. Well, and, and this is something I think before you and I started recording this idea about operationalizing theory, right? This is really what the concept of the show is about, is we know what research says works at the national level. We know the theory is it's how do we operationalize it? How do we apply that to community level and even to individual level? And that's what you're talking about. Uh, this is definitely something that, that I talk about, the neurological response and the stress response and the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system with my clients, talking about embodied emotion, what does anger feel like, which sort of makes them angry at me because they realize how angry they are all the time. Because sure. they, Once you, you know, get in touch, you realize, oh, yeah. there's a lot going on. Yeah. But then something else that you said, I think that is very important is this concept behind purpose and meaning. This is something that as I go through this again with all of my veterans, not everybody has PTSD because PTSD is not prevalent as, as many people think. All but I think two of my clients in the last five years have struggled in some way of finding purpose and meaning in post-military life. Mm -hmm. and, and in my observation and your research, that's critically important. Yes. And there are two ways. There's the secular way to talk about it. And you go to the Maslow hierarchy of needs at the very top of the triangle of the Maslow's hierarchy is that human need for transcendence, to connect and to matter to something larger than yourself. Um, whether that is a mission, whether that is a group of people for whom you would do absolutely anything, humans need to transcend themselves to optimize well-being and happiness. We just aren't the only game in town. That's not how we operate. And then from a religious perspective, there's this notion of divine connection, of connecting outside of yourself to a higher power. And the bottom line is we need that. If we want to optimize our well-being, we have to matter outside of our four walls. And I think that's a uniquely relevant component of resilience for military personnel. And one of the things I struggled with is I left the Marine Corps where I felt like everything I did really mattered. And I entered the civilian workforce. I struggled with feeling like my work where I spent a lot of my time mattered and really was making a difference. And that was incredibly important to my mental health. And I had to look at different career paths. I had to try a couple different things. I thought I wanted to go into the fitness industry and I loved, you know, sneakers and spandex and, and fitness. But as you actually work in the fitness industry to make money, you work with a lot of people that can afford you and thus don't really need you. So my sense of purpose began to slip and I wasn't happy. Uh, and I actually had to go into education and research and find a different path. And, you know, we see that in veterans. They tend to, as they leave the military, they tend to job hop a little bit more than civilians. It's, it's that search for sense of purpose. Our work means more than just a paycheck to us. And again, and I think this is something that isn't often discussed in our transition. A lot of veterans do have this lack of a sense of what I'm doing is as important as what I did. I have Vietnam veterans who say that the most important thing I did in my life was 50 years ago. And that's a very hard thing for veterans to, to come to terms with. 
Right. And also for veterans for whom faith was a, an important component of their lives. It's very easy in the military to drift away from that. I, I used to joke that, yes, I was raised believing in religion, but then I joined the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps became my religion. So getting back into communities of faith that um, added something to my well-being and happiness and was important for my transition. I all of a sudden had time to ask myself the big questions again, and that mattered. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I want to give you a few minutes, though, to talk about your upcoming book that's due to be released here shortly after this is published, specifically talking about suicide prevention. Yes. So the title of the book is Stopping Military Suicides, Veteran Voices to Prevent Deaths. And I co-authored this book with a social worker named Sarah Plummer Taylor, who has worked as a counselor and a coach and an educator since she left the Marine Corps. And what we wanted to talk about was how uh, a person can build resilience before they encounter the hardship of military transition. Because military transition is really a major life stressor. I certainly didn't think of it. I thought, hey, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. I'm making a choice. This isn't going to be hard. It was one of the hardest periods of my life. And one of the toughest things I ever did was finding a new identity after leaving the ranks of the Marine Corps. So what we write about in this book is how you operationalize resilience. So we talk about the issues of suicide. You know, we talk about the issue of transition being difficult, and we kind of lay all that out there. We share stories. I agree with Brene Brown. Stories are data with a soul. They make research data come alive. So we talk about the research on military transition, and we call it introduction to the battle space. So what is happening right now? Why are you reading this book? And then we go into the nuts and bolts of resilience, resilience for prevention and resilience for healing and resilience to smooth those rocky patches so that you're surfing the waves rather than letting the waves knock you over. And we, we break down social support. What does that look like? How do you build it? What kind of organizations are out there helping people build it? We talk a lot about nervous system regulation and both Sarah and I are yoga teachers and we're big believers in down-regulating the nervous system through mindfulness practices, through meditation. But we, ad we acknowledge that that's not for everybody. That's not going to be the path to, to nervous system management for everybody. So we talk about other paths and again, bring in our own stories and the stories of others to kind of highlight what that's looked like for folks. And then finally, we talk about sense of purpose what happens? How do you find it? How do you hold on to it? How do you prioritize it as something really important? And our hope is that we add to the conversation about suicide prevention by focusing on the ability to upstream. How do you prevent somebody from ever getting into a suicidal crisis? Sarah is a social worker. I'm not a clinician. I'm actually a public health professor. So my focus is often on if we have a predictor of a problem, then we can, by addressing the predictor, we can maybe prevent the problem. So I'm really interested in health promotion and prevention. But the great thing about resilience is that what works in the prevention sector works in the treatment sector. And so the clinical space can be, I think, really important for people. I also think there are issues of stigma in the military still to this day. It's a lot better now than it was a decade ago. A decade ago, nobody went to counseling and, you know, we all joked about such things. It's getting, it's getting more acceptable to avail ourselves of really important services. But 
there's got to be a way that we bring resilient trait cultivation into the conversation for people that just aren't going to walk into a counselor's office. So how do we do that? How do we mainstream it? And that's kind of the, the way we tie up the book. We talk about how to bring this to people who are treatment avoidant, especially we, military women veterans uh, use the VHA in lower numbers. Military women veterans are not participating in some of these veteran service organizations at rates that we would love to see. And there's got to be a way to reach people outside of the clinical model. How do we do that? That's really what we try to highlight in stopping military suicides. That's great. And I'm definitely going to make sure that links to the book, whether it's on pre-order or whenever it goes live, that it can be ordered. We'll make those links in the show notes. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I've enjoyed it tremendously, and I thank you for your work. This is Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, but when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man. Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer. She has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book. It is called Warrior. It is important. There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health. Stay well. Stay isolated, but not alone. Adios. You know, as a researcher and a veteran, I think Kate brings an important perspective to the conversation around service member veteran and military family suicide. Absolutely. It was interesting in reflecting on her own healing journey. Kate said this, as a Marine officer, I was not supposed to make mistakes, not supposed to feel depressed or need help, but I did. And especially as I struggled with leaving the active duty component, tough places and situations became tougher because I didn't know what people might be okay with an imperfect version of me. For too long, I chose silence over reaching out to loved ones or to professionals. I opted for deeply felt visceral shame over openness and vulnerability. The determined avoidance of care seeking I lived through is disturbingly normal in the military community that I call home. To carry forward the theme of the recent episode we had with Dr. Keita Franklin, I think it's helpful here to think about how systems influence and maintain certain behaviors. So the common thinking is that women are much more likely to seek therapy than men. While working with a largely female clientele of civilians, before I started focusing on working with warriors and their families, I saw the relative ease that many had in asking for help. To them, a psychologist was just part of their core team, just like you would have a dentist to maintain your oral health or a tax account to help you with your taxes. But for many women who serve in the military, it's the complete opposite. I think that many female warriors are actually much less likely than male warriors to seek help for a variety of reasons. I called Kate yesterday to check out this assumption, and she validated it. Female warriors are often trying to overcome a deficit of trust that rests on the assumption that they're not as tough as their male counterparts. 
In this environment, in this crucible, shaped by the need to belong to the tribe of warriors, female warriors are even more reluctant to engage in any behavior that might show vulnerability or need. It's a very tough nut to crack, but an important problem for us to start addressing. And I think Kate's work in this area can help us gain critical insights. I also don't wonder if it's a measure of taking on other roles after the military. A male service member comes out and sure, I go into the workforce, but I am a veteran. But I'm thinking of, uh, as I mentioned before, and I think maybe even in the show, I worked with female soldiers my entire military career because that was my career space. And my soldiers that I deployed with in Afghanistan, they got out and they became mothers, right? So their role as a mother, mm. they're focusing on their children. A, a number of the ones that I'm thinking of were dual military spouses. So they came out and married other combat veterans. And one in particular I'm thinking of identified more as a military spouse and a caregiver. And it wasn't until I, from my perspective as a mental health professional, reached out to her and said, hey, this incident that we had in Afghanistan, you have a TBI and need to get it checked out. She hadn't even considered herself. That's she was fascinating. focusing on her combat veteran husband and on their children. And, and I don't wonder, it's not that it wasn't important to her, it's maybe that other things were more important. So even in a given relationship, a female veteran can feel invisible as to their status and identity as a veteran. When other identities dominate, whether it's caregiver or mother, this can be another factor maybe that promotes this kind of uh, invisibility of some of our female warriors who have themselves served and maybe confronted different traumatic stressors. I think there's a lot of reasons. I don't want to oversimplify this. I mean, I know that the female veterans that I served in the VA, some of them said that they just really didn't feel comfortable coming to the VA as a setting because they were in the minority. And it didn't always feel like a safe space to be seen just structurally. They came, but they were just such a minority of my patient caseload that I think it's really valuable for people like Kate, who has the lived experience as a Marine officer, and she's a researcher, a really excellent researcher, to be really driving at what are those needs and how do we get in there and help the people that we might be overlooking? Yes. And I'm not sure if it is that in my one soldier I'm thinking of specifically, not that she felt invisible in her role, but that it just wasn't very prominent, right? It wasn't, Yeah. I, I guess saying invisible is like, I'm not being seen and I want to be seen, but it's just not very relevant. But then also the aspect of being uncomfortable is that, you know, I have a, a colleague, Mary Beth Bruggeman, who is the, the CEO of The Mission Continues. And she tells a story as a Marine platoon leader in, I believe it was Iraq, where after a mission, the gunnery sergeant, her platoon sergeant came up to her and said, you're doing a really good job, but can you stop using that shampoo that you're using because it's distracting people? And Wow. And she tells this story of how she went behind like the top and rubbed dirt in her hair mm. in, in, a, in an attempt to fit into what this perceived be less of a woman kind of thing. And like Kate, Mary Beth is very open about the fact that I shouldn't have have to do that. Yeah. That could be part of this changing of the culture that we need to do in yeah. order to keep women veterans from feeling invisible after the service. 
Yeah, I mean, so much of it is right. What we what do we expect of people? What do they need to do to find a tribe and to be recognized for their service in a way that's equally of weight? The other point that I wanted to highlight was Kate does work in the area as well of human stress response and optimal performance. She mentions that military people want to do things to develop greater control over their stress response and that they are very interested in learning ways to gain these skills. I strongly back up this observation. In fact, what I've seen is that many warriors already have the skills they need. It's just a matter of connecting with how to use them in a different way. One of the repeated things I've said to many of my patients over the years is something like this. You already have a greater ability to regulate your own body than most people walking around in the world right now. For example, even though your rage makes you feel out of control, remember that when you learn to fire your weapon, you learn to snap in and to get really calm by controlling your breathing and gently squeezing the trigger between breaths. So you have the ability to downregulate your body. And because of that, we can work on linking that ability to other challenges in your life. So often, a light bulb goes off when they make this connection. It works against the myth of the broken veteran and helps warriors see their true capabilities, if only applied in new ways. I'm sure that Kate has developed similar approaches based on my understanding of who she is and how she works around these issues. Yeah, and I use that analogy as well. When I describe mindfulness meditation, I use the weapons training example, right? We regulate our breathing. We're not thinking about breakfast. We're not thinking about dinner. We're not thinking about anything outside of that moment where we are extremely focused. And, And again, in my experience, it's very similar to your experience, is that when veterans are able to take what they know how to do and yeah. deliberately recall it and apply it, it is a light bulb moment. And, and I think it's a, a very important thing is to say, you do have power over this. You do have autonomy over this. What you're talking about, the work that Kate does and kind of what I've come to, it's beyond cultural competence. This is not just knowing the names of things or the different branches of service. You have to have, if you want to walk with warriors, a deep understanding of how they are trained and socialized so that you can pull from that understanding to help them use the assets they already have to apply to the challenges in your life. And you don't get there unless you either served yourself and had that weapons training or sought that training or a deep understanding of the process that they go through so that you can use that understanding to benefit them. And at the same time, that cultural competence is necessary but it's not sufficient because we also need to have the clinical background of understanding the difference between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, neuropsychology, uh, mindfulness, right? We have to have that clinical basis of understanding and how to apply that to that cultural competence. And so, yes, I think Kate is doing a lot of good work and an example of somebody where you don't have to be a mental health professional to have a voice in this conversation. I really appreciate everybody taking the time to check us out. Make sure to check out the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS20. We can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. 
Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon, and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone ever.